All right. Good morning, Trinity Church. Let me again welcome you. If this is your first time here, I'm a new face. Uh, my name is David Goodman, and um, usually we have a doctor of theology who preaches to us, um, Ben Bailey. Um, but today you guys are stuck with a regular old OBGYN. So, um, uh, guys, I'm sorry. Um, Ben asked me to um, preach on a parable outside of the Gospel of Matthew, so I don't steal his thunder in any way. Um, and so I thought, naturally, what I would do is um, go to um, my favorite uh, physician-turned-biblical author, Luke, and find one of the eight parables that uh, he records that aren't recorded in the other Gospels. And so there's some real, like, feel-good uh, parables you could pick if you wanted to go for, like, the Good Samaritan or um, the parable of the lost coin or the prodigal son. But we're not going to talk about that today. We're actually going to talk about the parable of the rich fool. And um, spoiler alert, the guy dies in the end. So um, my mom always told me I was a glutton for punishment. Um, you know, uh, I heard on NPR uh, this week that 60% of people feel uncomfortable talking about money in public. And so if you're one of those 60%, just go ahead and raise your hand and we'll get it out there. Okay, okay I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. All joking aside, um, I wish that I could promise you that today was not going to be uncomfortable. But just like having a baby, sometimes the only way through it is for things to get a little bit uncomfortable. Um, I really wanted to study this passage, and so I just use this as an opportunity uh, when Ben asked me to preach, is that I can feel my, the idealism of my 20s starting to fade away. I am pushing 40 and can only imagine a conversation with myself um, as a young 20-year-old um, who was ready to change the world and tell my parents everything they did was wrong and all this sort of stuff. And um, now I find myself as a practicing physician. Uh, I um, am taking on the responsibilities of a grown man, things like buying a house, saving for retirement, and learning how to steward what God has entrusted to me. I wanted to sit down with Jesus's words on this subject and really try to learn um, what do I need to hear um, at this time of my life. I spent a lot of time thinking about discipleship and what it means to be a Christian today in our current cultural moment. Um, like Julio mentioned, we lead the medical student discipleship ministry here at our church, and I have three boys um, in my house that I have to raise up to be men um, who know how to learn and follow after God. And um, if you're anything like me, I can find following Jesus to be an imposing invitation. Um, Ben's been talking lately about how Jesus is our dearest friend and God is our perfect loving father, but I often don't feel that way. I often feel, especially when it comes to money, that Jesus can be this imposing figure who really wishes that I lived a lot differently and is probably critical and disappointed in the way that I am performing. And I wanted to sit with Jesus and hear what he has to say and what he could be speaking towards us. I genuinely want to know what does it mean and for me and my family to be rich towards God, as Jesus teaches in our passage today, I can question, am I doing enough to be faithful to all that Jesus had to say on the subject of money? And Jesus had a lot to say on the subject of money. In fact, 11 out of his 39 parables deal with the proper use of wealth and our possessions. 
if, imagine if we spent 25% of our time here talking about money, most of you guys would be really uncomfortable and not want to come back. And so let's, let's, face, let's face the facts that as we talk about money and wealth, many of us in this room by global standards could be considered rich. If you look around the world, if you have an, an annual income of $60,000 per year, then you are in the top 1% of all income earners um, around the world. That's for you as a single person. For family, it gets a little more complicated. Um, whether, whether or not that's the case for you, just the fact that we woke up, most of us woke up in a house with a roof and four walls. Most of us had access to food this morning. We had clean water, perhaps, to get cleaned up. We had um, some sort of transportation, either a, a vehicle that worked or wonderful, healthy legs that carried us here. All of those things, if you add them together over the course of human history, we enjoy a wealth these days that, can, that was only ever hinted at by the wealthiest kings and queens of generations behind us. But that is not the reality for all of us. And I understand that. And I want to be very sensitive that the pandemic has been hard for some families. The pandemic has been difficult for many people in our country. I don't want, to, um, I don't want you to feel uh, condemned for anything. I don't want you to feel left out today. We want this to be a church where if you are hard, having hard times, if you are suffering, that this can be a place where you can come for healing and love and compassion. That, that is a true message of our church. That is not our focus today, but what we do want to do is to focus those of us who have means on being the hands and feet of God to minister to those who perhaps are hurting financially in our family. I want you to join with me today as we pray and focus on what Jesus has to say in his parable about the man whose money made him a fool. Let's pray together. God, you um, love us. You are present with us here. God, you are closer than we can even be aware of. And God, I pray that you would calm our hearts now, that God, we would let you speak to us about what you want to say about our money, about our wealth, about the way that we live. God, I pray that you would save us from the power of money, how it binds us to this world and how it blinds us to your kingdom. Teach us to be on guard that we may know how to truly be rich towards you. Amen. I also want to mention that I have no financial relationship to the church. Um, we are not starting a building campaign, and this has nothing to do with Ben um, uh, making a proposition that I convict you all about money. So if you think, churches always just ask about money, they're always doing this, they're always doing that, that could not be further from the truth. So forgive me if you feel that way. Our scripture today comes from Luke 12, uh, 13 through 21. So as you turn there or open up your apps, um, I want to go ahead and set the stage a little bit for what Jesus is, is, is teaching. So Luke 12 seems to be moving at a really fast pace. Jesus is going from conversation to conversation, kind of traveling from Bethany, presumably to Jerusalem, and engaging with um, the Pharisees and teachers of the law and asking, you know, all these difficult questions and kind of just laying down a lot of truth, kind of the way Jesus does, boom, 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 boom. And all of a sudden, a man interrupts him. This one man gets a chance to break through the crowd and interrupt this flow and ask one question of Jesus. He doesn't really seem to be qualified the way the other antagonists to Jesus have been. And he doesn't really ask some like deep pressing theological question. He's not like, Jesus, do people have free will? That'd have been nice to have that answer. He's not like, 
Jesus, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? And he didn't ask that. I mean, don't, don't you wonder sometimes like how that works? This man comes to Jesus to ask him to settle a financial dispute between him and his brother. So join with me in Luke chapter 12, verse 13. So someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So notice this man is kind of setting himself up as a victim in the situation. And Jesus replied to him and said, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? He said to him, take care and be on your guard. Notice that double emphasis that he, that he makes. Take care and be on your guard for, against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So covetousness or greed, as some uh, translations say, is the Greek word pleonexia. And here, it can be defined as an insatiable desire or lust for more and more stuff. What lust is to sexuality, greed is to materialism. And I think this is really interesting. Jesus knows that this man is not a victim. It is likely the case that um, a family patriarch had died, and uh, he left an inheritance that should be divided. And the way that the, the, the rules worked is, um, could go a couple of different ways. Uh, Klein Snodgrass, in his book on the parable, Stories with Intent, points out that it was preferable or perhaps praiseworthy if the brothers could find a way to live in harmony without dividing in their inheritance. But perhaps these brothers were too far gone. If, if, the, if the inheritance had to be divided, there was a stipulation in, in the scriptures that the older brother in a patriarchal society got a double portion. And so I have, four, I have three kids, so you divide my inheritance by four ways, Deacon would get a double portion and Alden and Keller would be stuck with their, you know, one-fourth. And um, that was the way set up to provide for the family, for the women and children and other people that were in the household. And there was a civil way that the younger brothers could go on their way. But Jesus knows somehow through this man's request that that wasn't what was going on. Somehow these two brothers were so estranged that he could not be trusted with his inheritance. Jesus knew he wasn't a victim. He actually needed this admonition. I also find it really interesting that Jesus doesn't like do the parenting juke that we all kind of want to do when we have little kids. Like, like what, what do you say when your kids come downstairs and they're like, my brother won't, won't give what to me? We always say, you should share. It's the Christian thing to do, share. Like, why is Jesus not like, okay, well, brothers, let's sit down, let's get together, let's have a snack and learn about how we share. He doesn't do that. That's not what Jesus is doing to this guy. He knows that's not what he needs. He's also not condemning him for wanting stuff. He's not, it's not wrong or against God's will for there to be a passing on of inheritance from fathers to sons in the way that families were taken care of. There's laws in the Old Testament for how this inheritance should have been passed on. Their inheritance is a great blessing. The Proverbs talk plenty about how you, um, you can bless your children with wise living. The first point that I want us to see, which is I think the point that Jesus was making for this man, is that money has a distinct way, distinct power of binding us to the world. Our trajectory as a society over the last 60 years would argue that for many of us, myself included, this is a struggle. Uh, the, the Portland pastor, John Mark Comer, in several places in his teaching and writing, has pointed out that um, our culture 
made an intentional transition from a needs-based economy to a desires-based economy through what he calls a shadow alliance of politicians, advertisers, and business tycoons that took place after around the World War II um, great transition in our economy. Listen to this quote from 1955 from Victor Lebo writing in a retail professional's journal, directing some of the people that kind of pull these strings behind the scenes. And consider if, if his vision for a post-war America has come true. So Victor Lebo writes, in 1955, which we consider to be like the good old days, right? He writes, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption a way of life, that we convert the buying and the use of goods into rituals, and that we seek our spiritual satisfactions in consumption. The measure of our social status, our prestige, is now to be found in our consumptive patterns. The very meaning and significance of our lives today, how many, do anybody feel that? The meaning and significance of our lives today is to be expressed in consumptive terms. And these are the people who hold the pressures. They help put that squeeze through retail and advertising. And he says, the greater the pressures upon the individual to conform to safe and accepted standards, the more does he tend to express his aspirations and individuality in terms of what he wears, he drives, he eats, his home, his car, and his hobbies. We need things. This is the retailers, the that shadow alliance. We need things to be consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced, and discarded at an ever-increasing pace. We need to have people eat, drink, dress, ride, drive, live ever more complicated and therefore expensive consumption. Do any, do any of you feel like 60 years of our society has led us to a place where we feel the the urge, this natural urge that bubbles up from within us to eat, drink, drive, dress, ride, live ever more complicated and consumer lives. I'm convinced this is the air that we breathe. Statistics say that Americans see on average 5,000 advertisements a day. I can't conceive of how that is the case, but when we drive around here, you can just imagine all the billboards that beckon to us from every different way. You can imagine all the dings and the buzzes on our phones that are, we see every day, so perhaps this is true. But every day we see 5,000 little drips, little touches, little impulses that speak to our unconscious motivations that paint an alternative version of reality in a sustaining refrain that echoes in the great words of Napoleon Dynamite, I want that. You see, money has a way to bind us to the world when we trust it and seek it and serve it. Matthew 6, Jesus says, you cannot, you cannot serve both God and money, for you will be devoted to one and despise the other. Jesus says, it is the way that life works that you get bound to what you love. Richard Foster, in his book on simplicity, calls consumerism a rival philosophy about what constitutes blessedness. Jesus says there is a rival philosophy that if you love it, it will bind you to its world. He actually uses the word mammon like a god, like a, and the ancient god of um, I guess, consumerism and, and money. And he acknowledges, it's the only time, I, I guess, one of the few times Jesus acknowledges kind of idol worship and, and that sort of, of deification. We all have a genuine desire to seek satisfaction, 
emotional, physical, spiritual satisfaction. But too often we labor and are heavy laden, caught up in a cycle of upward mobility manifested in the cars we drive, the homes we inhabit, and the toys we consume, only to wind up exhausted, disappointed, and empty. Last week, Ben taught about Jesus, our dearest friend who knows that we are vulnerable to this temptation. And he said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If we don't learn to be on our guard, as Jesus said, if we don't learn to be on our guard against the consumptive narrative of our psyche and our society, then we run the risk of being bound to the world in such a way that what we consume will ultimately consume us. But Jesus offers a better way. To make his point more clear, Jesus tells the man a story. So turn back to Luke chapter 12, verse 16. And here he says, he tells the man, A parable. He says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Notice that it is the land that produced. Every good Jew living in the first century knew that it was God who owned the land, that we were just stewards of it. And and Jesus tells this man, the land produced plentifully, a bountiful harvest. Verse 17, and the man, the rich fool, thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. Notice his refrain of I, 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 my, my, my. I can only imagine Jesus teaching this and his his ultimately agrarian communal society who lives for the benefit of each other can hear this, the foolishness, almost like like a jester in a court saying, I, 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 my, my, my. And the man says, verse 19, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That was the ultimate end to which this fool had made his life. His identity had become so wrapped up in his wealth that his image of ultimate reality could only be described as temporal, carnal satisfaction in which his needs were met and his foreseeable future was secured. Eat, drink, and be merry was a common colloquialism for the good life. We've heard it in Dave Matthews, uh, if, you're, if you were into that back in the early 2000s. And Paul references in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, when he says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This was a common phrase throughout Ecclesiastes and Judges, Isaiah, the Stoic literature, other rabbinical literature of the time. This sort of attitude is prevalent in our day. Think about what we are sold by Instagram influencers and advertising companies. They paint the picture. They pay people to go on vacation, to work out all the time, to take clothes for free from boutiques, to cook fancy meals, to create these images of the good life, of eat, drink, and be merry. And they sell it, they sell it to us, warning us to desire that more and more so we may buy their products. But the end to which a society built on, this is the end to which a society built on consumption is pointing, and it's a false narrative. This is the only time that God is a character in one of Jesus' parables, and God enters in verse 20 and says, you fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Notice here that the fool is not being 
killed on account of his wealth. This is not a case of saying you better give your money or else God's going to kill you. That is not what you need to be hearing. Death is a natural part of life. And God is, and but the word here um, of saying your life is required of you paints the word picture of a debt, a debt that's being called. This man failed to steward what he had been given by God in such a way that his, when his debt was called, he had nothing of substance to show for it. He was caught up in building his own kingdom rather than investing in God's kingdom. He spent thousands of, God had spent thousands of years through the law, the prophets, and faithful rabbis teaching the Jewish people how to properly manage their excess. He had taught them about the tithe, giving 10% to the priesthood to be, to be distributed and used for those purposes. He had taught them about um, creating margin in their harvest so that the poor could glean from their fields. We see this beautifully in the book of, Luke, of Ruth. He created the institution of the Jubilee, which we have no record that the Jews ever actually celebrated, but God intentionally created this method of Jubilee by which every debt was, uh, re- was re- repaid, was relinquished, and people could have their collapsing poverty Given, given away. He would not let the Jews exact interest from their neighbors, and he insisted over and over again that they care for the orphan, the alien, and the widow all throughout the law in the Old Testament. We see Jeremiah 9.23. He says, Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. This fool could have been satisfied with the barns that he had. He thankfully could have enjoyed the bounty that his fields produced and then thoughtfully distributed the excess as a way of demonstrating love, justice, and righteousness in worshipful delight of the God who had given it to him, his loving father who longs to delight in such things. But that is not the direction that he chose. The second way that money has power over us is that it can blind us to the work of God on earth and what he has for us as new creation people. I just listed all the things that God had called the Old Testament, the Jewish people, the Old Covenant people to, and he presents even new opportunities for us to follow him as his people who are living into the new creation that has been promised in Jesus and the resurrection. St. Augustine, writing 400 years after Jesus told this parable, said, the fool did not realize that the bellies of the poor were perhaps much better storerooms than his barns. I recall a conversation that I had with my father-in-law, Steve, one time when I was kind of, you know, thinking about investing and the miracles of compound interest and all these sort of things. And we were talking in his living room and I was like, but yeah, what if like you put a few thousand dollars away now and then you invest it and the, and it grows and like, you know, 10, 20, 30 years later, you have like a million dollars. And then in this big sweeping um, burst of generosity, you can give a million dollars away and it would be great and it would be good. And Steve, you know, as he does, just kind of looked at me and was just like, yeah, David, but think about what God could do with that, how he could exponentially grow an investment now in the lives of millions of people over 10, 20, and 30 years. 
I was like, wow, I bet you've probably said that before to some people with a lot of money. And so um, if we think about the Lord's Prayer, what does Jesus tell us to open up the Lord's Prayer? He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name and your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He teaches us to pray that, to pray your kingdom come on earth. And there's a lot of people that have different opinions about what that looks like. But I'm convinced that money is one vehicle by which the kingdom of heaven is made manifest on earth. No matter how you define what the kingdom of God coming on earth looks like, do you think if it happened that some of the following elements that I'm going to list would be present? Some of these things actually are probably directly linked to the mission statements of some of the ministry organizations that we have here in our city. This list comes from a book called God and Money by Gregory Balmer and John Cortinez. So check them for the, for the numbers. They present this list of things that could happen. And I want you to think about this. Would this look like the kingdom of, of God coming on earth? How much do you think it would cost to address all of the following things on this list? sponsor 1 million indigenous full-time missionaries in poor nations around the world, completely fund the fight against global malaria, quadruple the global missions budget to all missions agencies involved in reaching unevangelized nations, provide food, clothing, and shelter to all 6.5 million refugees in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, triple the global Bible translation budget, fund 150,000 seminary scholarships for promising students from emerging economies, double the operation budget of Compassion International, establish eight Christian universities around the world, and hire 25,000 American missionaries to work on our college campuses. Bomber and Cortinas calculate that all of these things could be done if people in the world who claim to be Christians unleashed 0.4% of their annual incomes, $1 out of every 250 could go towards us seeing a rapid decrease in the number of unreached peoples around the world and in the extreme suffering from oppression, poverty, and disease. I know that the implication of all the implementation of all those things would be really complicated. I, I understand that and I get that. But what if we as Christians could release our money, could be unbound from our money and see fully God's vision for his kingdom coming on earth? What if we could release our money and see God, see the spirit of God implement those things all over the world? God wants to continue to move powerfully in our world today. And one of the ways that he is doing that is by working in the hearts and the budgets of his followers to be a people truly rich towards God. So how can we begin to be rich towards God? I've perseverated about this question a lot. And even though I'm a doctor, I cannot begin to prescribe specifics for you and your family unit. I can't tell you what car you should drive or what house you should live in or any of that. I don't, I don't think the Bible would choose to tell us that necessarily. This has to come through spirit-led conversations and hard decisions. Being rich towards God is a disposition of the heart that is much larger than but related to our relationship with money, 
wealth, and where we seek our satisfaction. And as we close, I want to introduce an idea to you, and I want to let this kind of linger with you. Jesus teaches later in Luke 12, 29 through 34, when he says, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink. Remember, these are the markers of the good life, the markers of plenty and displaced satisfaction. He says, don't seek these things or be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after those things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you as well. And he turns to them, he says, fear not, little flock. And I was so amazed, because this is the same, this is the same group where our younger brother came from. Jesus was kind of frustrated with his younger brother, but he turns, and in the same group, while this man is sitting there, he says to him, my little flock, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This guy is begging for his earthly father's money, and Jesus says, bro, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom to give you more than you're asking me for. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't wear out and treasures in heaven that does not fail, where there is no thief, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. To be rich towards God requires that we learn in a new way that anticipates God's future reality of a new heavens and a new earth when God renews and recreates the earth, making all things new and setting the world to right. This has been a really important idea for me and what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ, and that is the word anticipation. So the anticipation is not just, I anticipate that Novak Djokovic is going to win Wimbledon today. It is not predicting something that's likely to happen in the future. The secondary definition of anticipation in the way that Tom Wright uses it in um, some of his writings related to this is that when we anticipate, we begin to change our behavior now in the present because we know it has implications for the future. So when I was in medical school, I knew that I wanted to be a surgeon. I wanted to have those talents. And so rather than just kind of sitting around doing nothing about it, I began to anticipate that future reality. I learned to train myself not to require much sleep. I knew that I could not make it. Um, in residency and in my life as someone who required eight to nine hours of sleep. I also knew that I had to have great dexterity with surgical instruments. I went so far as using sterile instruments that I took them from the hospital and started practicing opening and closing, popping them open with one hand. I would actually eat with surgical instruments, trying to use and build the dexterity that I would need two years later in, in residency and in practice, I began to work on those things now. I knew that I needed to be able to tie really effective knots. So as a medical student, you would put an extra piece of suture on your white coat. And during lectures and downtime, you would tie knots. You'd practice tying these perfect square knots that are guaranteed not to slip. I'd be watching TV and I would, be, I would take the string off my shorts and just work on tying it. And so working through things in the mundane preparatory portions of life, I would do the habits. I took on the habits of a, of a new life, of a new future, because I knew that it was in those moments of preparation when you were tying knots in the mundaneness of life that those skills would be there when someone's life depended on it. 
What God has called us to is that he is making all things new. He will redeem and recreate the earth. And he has invited us somehow in a mysterious way to be part of that. And what we do here and now echoes into that. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he offers three practices that he kind of assumes people are going to do as Christians in the future. They come from Matthew 6, verse 5, verse 2, and verse 16, when he says, quite simply, when you pray, when you fast, and when you give. He doesn't say if, he just says when. He believes these are three practices that Christians are going to take. And I've become convinced in preparing this material that these are three practices we can use to implement into our life to anticipate the kingdom that God has for us that is coming. Regarding prayer, in a world of advertisements clamoring for our affections, we can live richly towards God through communion, silence, and solitude with him. Some have called prayer learning to think God's thoughts after him. Prayer is a time when we can do battle against all forms of covetousness by renewing our minds from the fleshly desires that invade our thoughts throughout the day. Fasting. This is not a popular thing in our world today. But prior to, um, you know, a few hundred years ago, it was essential parts of the Christian life. I've had a rich fasting practice in the past, and I'm trying to start it again um, as a way of speaking to myself what God wants to do in the world. In a world that defines completion by consumption, we can learn to deny ourselves of temporary pleasures because we know there is a better eternal reality that we are heading towards. Fasting is not only about denying ourselves, but it involves learning to truly appreciate what is valuable. One form of fasting is just intentional simplicity. As a practice, you can open up margin in your life to be present to kingdom-focused opportunities that may otherwise be drowned out by a consumptive lifestyle that struggles to sustain itself. And finally, giving. In a world that considers luxurious living as the ultimate objective, we can free ourselves of the tyranny of money by using it to serve God's objectives in a world rather than our own. Jesus is our dearest friend, and he wants to open our eyes to ultimate reality, to love the things that he loves and be rich towards God. I'm reminded in uh, Matthew 25 at the end when Jesus is talking about uh, the judgment day and things to come. And he, he actually says, you know, come, welcome to the kingdom. And he says, for when I was, when I was uh, thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. When I was naked, you gave me clothing. And people say, when do we, when do, we do this? And he said, what you have done for the least of these, you have done for me. Somehow what we do in this life echoes into God's eternity. Jesus is present. Jesus says, what you've done to these people here on earth, you've done it to me because I am present in that. Somehow the veil between heaven and earth gets a little bit thinner when we open up our hearts and give ourselves away. And as we move towards communion, we might think we're giving ourselves away, but we're really not. Jesus, on the night he was portrayed, actually promised, I am going to give myself away. I, I will be that sacrifice for you. I will be the ultimate giver. 
And he, told, he joined his disciples together and he gave us a practice. He gave us a practice by which we can anticipate his coming kingdom and his ultimate reality. So he said on that night, he said, this is my body, which will be broken for you. Take and eat it. And then Jesus passed a cup after supper. And he said, this is my blood poured out for you, a marker of the new covenant. He said, drink and do this in remembrance of me. And in doing so, remember the day that I will return. Amen. Well, being called into the Lord's presence, making great his name, acknowledging our sin, our brokenness in the fall, being instructed by his word, being invited to his table, and now being sent out with the Lord's blessing. Would you go in peace to love and serve the risen Lord Jesus Christ?